You're tuned into 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where I speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by structural biologist Nicole Halepec from the Department of Molecular and Cell Biology here on campus. Welcome, Nicole. <laughs> you don't have to say hi. It's cool. Hi. Uh, eventually, you will have to talk into the microphone. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll start with the big question, uh, and we talked about this already, but so what is structural biology? In structural biology, we're thinking about the molecules in the cell and in the body and how the shapes of those molecules actually affect their function and how they work. So when you say shape of a molecule, what gives a molecule like a shape? Is it just the different parts and the orientation they're attached to? I mean, I, this is like way out of my, this is like back to high school for me, but. <laughs> I, I never really thought about the question of what gives a molecule its shape. And I feel like I could answer that in so many ways. So every molecule is made up of different atoms linked together. Um, and so the angles between those atoms and how far apart they are from each other dictates the shape of that molecule. And in structural biology, we're mainly looking at very, very big uh, molecules with thousands and thousands of atoms. So the number of possible shapes is actually huge. So what would be the exa an example of like a really big molecule? Oxygen is just O2, right? So it's just the two. So it's small. That's mm -hmm. a small molecule. So what's a big one? <laughs> uh, anything that we study would basically be big. Like I study proteins specifically. And the protein complex that I study is actually a whole bunch of different proteins linked together. It's thousands and thousands of atoms. So that's a really big one. Yeah. But like nothing we would know by name, just like... One large uh, molecule that people might think about is hemoglobin, the protein in the blood that actually ferries oxygen to the cells. So that's, that's an example of a protein. It's a biomolecule, and it's fairly large. I study proteins that are actually even bigger than that, but... And how can you tell how big a molecule is? Do you have to like bounce something off of it or how do, how do people do that? There are a lot of ways. A lot of ways? Yeah. How do you guys do that? Basically, in my lab, we start with things that have already been characterized in terms of what atoms are in there and how large they are. And we're just looking at the, the shape of that and how those atoms are oriented relative to each other. So we already know the size. Okay. Well, I have to ask how, I mean, not... Not very many little children are thinking to themselves like, oh, structural biology, that's that's the the place for me. So how did you get interested in this or where did your interest start? Uh, I guess I always wanted to do science ever since I figured out uh, what science was. My interest in it, in science in general, started when I was a kid. Maybe it helped that my parents are also interested in science. They never pushed me to do it, but a lot of the toys that I had as a kid were magnets and little prisms that I would look through. And I don't know if that's weird, but that was what was interesting to me to play with. Um, and I liked to read a lot. So as I sort of took classes and did reading online, I figured out that I, I liked biology and I liked chemistry. And the one thing that really struck me was that sometime in, in middle school or high school, I realized that the cell is full of all these different molecules that have to do things. They have to get things actually accomplished, but molecules don't think, right? So sometimes I don't even know what I'm going to do. How do molecules know what they're going to do? And how do they all operate together in this big complex thing like the cell or even the multitude of cells that make up the human body? So that's when I um, figured that this was something that I could actually 
study and do for my career. Yeah, career. Yeah, no. And so then you did study that as you studied chemistry as an undergraduate, right? Uh, yeah, I was a biochemistry major. At the time, I guess a lot of the things that I were inter was interested in were chemistry. I worked in a physical chemistry lab. So what, in terms of like the difference between chemistry and biology, like when you say you worked in a physical chemistry lab, does that mean you were just like putting tinctures into different test tubes and, you know, heating them up like we see with mad scientists in, in the movies? Actually, uh, physical chemistry is probably about as far from doing what people would think of as chemistry as is possible. My goal in the physical chemistry lab that I worked in, Eric Borges lab at Temple University, was to develop a sensor for dangerous gases. Um, specifically, the one I was trying to be able to detect was hydrazine, which is used as a rocket fuel. Um, so not only is it extremely explosive, it's also really toxic. So people need to know when uh, this is leaking. <laughs> Have there been instances of this leaking, like in the past, that, that caused this concern? Uh, it must be a concern somewhere, not just at NASA, but... <laughs> Actually, it was a collaboration with NASA. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. so maybe it is like a NASA concern that yeah. they're just like, we just need to make sure that when we're developing these rocket fuels, like nobody's getting exposed to them. Yeah, nobody's going to get poisoned or blown up. That was the goal. So when you work with them, does that mean you have to wear like a special suit or something if they're toxic and explosive? Or they just ask you to put on a hairnet and <laughs> put some gloves on? Uh, there are different kinds of precautions that you can take when working with these kind of chemicals, um, depending on the concentration of them and what you're going to do with them. So we, we basically have um, or had a special setup in the laboratory that would uh, ensure that none of the, the fumes would come into contact with us. That, that sounds pretty good. So you know, you feel pretty safe that you did not ingest a lot of hydrazine. That's what it is, right? <laughs> <laughs> you feel mostly comfortable. <laughs> well, I definitely didn't get uh, blown up. And I think that if uh, I had been exposed, I, I would have noticed. So I'm, I'm probably fine. Um, that's pretty cool. And so did you actually like meet NASA scientists or is this just a collaboration like over email sort of thing? We Skyped. <laughs> no, that's good. <laughs> did they wear like a NASA symbol? Did you actually get to see any part of NASA or is just a, that's another project? Not really. Okay, so bachelor's of science uh, in biochemistry at Temple, and then, but now you're in molecular and cell biology, which is technically like a different thing, right? So how do you decide to make that transition, or was it just like a natural progression from one to the other? So uh, the molecular and cell biology department at Berkeley actually has a lot of different subdivisions, and the subdivision that I'm in is biochemistry, biophysics, and structural biology. So although my research is different now than what it was when I was an undergraduate. A lot of the ways of thinking and the, um, the topics are very similar. Yeah. So it almost has the same name, actually, than your subdivision, right? So yeah. maybe it wasn't so much of a transition. But um, where, remind me, where is Temple? Is that, it's on the East Coast. It's in Philadelphia. It's in Philadelphia. Are you from Philadelphia? Somewhat, I guess. I, I was born in Wisconsin, and then my family lived in New Jersey for several years before I went to Temple. And Wisconsin's like, I'm so bad at geography. That's like Midwest, not where it's more Midwest than East Coast. Yeah, it's considered the Midwest. It's it's pretty far north okay. by, the, by the Great Lakes touching Canada. Either way, the point is California is pretty far away from all of three of those places. So was it just the school that brought you here or what, were you thinking about other parts of California? It was really just the school. In fact, I had never even been to California before I went on my interviews for grad school. 
And somehow I ended up going to interviews at three different schools in California. So I chose to come here because of the school, but I don't regret my decision in terms of living here. Yeah, no. And yeah, go go Bears, UC Berkeley. Yeah, all the way. Um, so, okay. So you came from the East Coast, pretty much the same topic, but obviously a new journey here. So what have you been interested in here at Berkeley? Like, what are you working on these days? In my research? Yeah. Or in life, we can, whatever, you know. I know that some scientists do have lives. Not not very many, but but a few. But um, yeah, mostly research. Like My current research is congruent with my previous interests um, in the molecules in the cell and how they behave. But one thing that's a little bit different that if you told me that I would be doing this a few years ago uh, is that I'm actually studying something that's involved in the immune system. And the immune system always seemed too complicated to me. Uh, this is the side of biology that I'd never really went to. Like, I was much more interested in the small things, the molecules, and maybe the, the biggest thing that I might think about would be a single cell. I'm not thinking about the whole organism, like an entire animal, or it, how does it develop and how, how does its immune system work. I, I never really, not that I never thought about those things, but I definitely didn't imagine myself working on that. So now what I actually ended up studying is this complex of multiple different proteins put together within animal cells that detects when bacteria are present when they're infecting the cell. And so what it does is that uh, after it detects the presence of bacteria, it instructs the cell to self-destruct and to uh, secrete chemicals that cause inflammation. So is this process that we're thinking about, about inflammation and these bacteria, is that like happening at a wide scale and that there are many different kind of bacteria that can come in and many like what we would associate with like diseases can come in or is it very like one specific disease you're thinking about? Right. Okay. So the, there are multiple different kinds of inflammasomes, the complex that I study, but the one similarity is that they all are part of what's called the innate immune system, uh, which basically means that they're responding to generalized threats. They're not the part of the immune system that says, oh, hey, I've, I recognize this, I've seen it before, which is called the adaptive immune system. What they actually do is detect pieces of intruders that are very, very common. So the, the inflammasome that I actually study detects flagellin, which is a protein in the bacterial flagellum, that little tail that helps it move around. So a lot of bacteria have flagella so that's a really common thing that would be helpful to be responding to. So then this could this reaction could be happening on a daily basis in humans, for example. Yeah. Yeah. So lots. Of, okay, cool. So you said you're studying the way that they react to the bacteria and and release these other and, and self-destruct like the whole process or one specific a aspect of that. So what I'm studying is how the inflammasome actually binds to that bacterial protein. So they come together somehow and then that must do something to the inflammasome that then lets it have these downstream effects that lets it give the signal for the cell to do those things. What I'm looking for is what happens to the inflammasome when it detects flagellin. When flagellin binds the inflammasome, there must be something that's happening to it that allows it to then activate this whole signaling cascade that says you need to self-destruct, there's some intruder here, and, and bring on the inflammatory, or sorry, and basically to summon an immune response to that site. So this takes us back to why you're actually a structural biologist, mm -hmm. right? Because you're talking about the structure of the bacteria and the structure of the inflammasome and how they come together to cause this reaction. So physically, like the physical mm -hmm. property of them joining. 
So yeah, there is a specific interaction between those proteins, but we don't actually know uh, what it looks like at that interface. We don't know how the flagellin is, is interacting with the inflammasome. And that's what we're actually trying to, that's part of what we're trying to find out. Because, I mean, the flagellin has a specific shape and the, the proteins that make up the inflammasome, they also have a specific shape. So which parts of the inflammasome are interacting with which parts of the flagellin? And if you know that, then you can figure out a lot about um, And so this is interesting just from a, a basic perspective of um, how do these things work in biology. Uh, but hypothetically, if you knew that information, how, how these things bind together, then it's feasible that the information that we could gain from this research might actually also have some sort of medical impl implications down the line. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and today I'm joined by Nicole Halepeck from the Department of Molecular and Cell Biology here at Berkeley, telling us about her work in structural biology and looking at the innate immune system. So what are some of the methods that you guys use to try and answer these questions about how they're binding or what the structure is? In our lab, the main method that we use is electron microscopy. These protein complexes, even though I said that they are large, they are large on um, a molecular scale. They're large compared to many of the other molecules that you might be familiar with, but they are actually still very, very small. Their size is usually on the order of maybe tens of nanometers. And nano means small. We know that. Yeah, it's yeah. A, a nanometer is a, a billionth of a meter. Oh, okay. So very yeah, small. They're, they're okay. very small. And you can't actually even see them with conventional microscopes, like light microscopes that you would usually picture in a lab or that... Like people, like I used yeah. in high school or here at an, in anatomy. Yeah, it's just like a general microscope. So the electron microscope actually allows us to see even smaller things than the light microscope. So um, that's why we use that to look at these complexes. And is it like, can you draw me a picture of it? Is it like a giant box or is it just like a normal like the same size as the like light microscope or it's it... much much bigger it's much bigger. it has to be built into the room oh okay so very very big and do you have one in your lab or do you have to go somewhere special to use it our lab actually has three uh electron microscopes or, or maybe two and a half because <laughs> one is shared <laughs> nice okay so you must have a lot of rooms then <laughs> so you got to be built in right yeah um cool okay so you use electron uh, microscopy to look at this and that it is that it? Uh, is that like every day you just sit in front of the electron microscope? And... Uh, fortunately not, because it's really, really dark down there. It's, it has to be in the basement so that the vibrations won't disturb the imaging. And also, um, yeah, it's dark. So it would get kind of weird and lonely if I was just on the microscope every single day. So that's, what, that's part of what we have to do. And the other aspects of it are basically on the, on the pre-microscope side. You have to prepare that protein complex so that you can look at it under the microscope. After you take your sample to the microscope, that's actually where most of the work begins. With the electron microscope, you're actually looking at um, how the electrons passed all the way through your sample. So it's not exactly like a photograph. Uh, it's actually a projection. So you have these images of your molecule. But if you really want to see the shape and how things are interacting, then you need to figure out what this looks like in three dimensions. You'll have images of the complex at multiple different angles, but that's still only giving you uh, a sort of a 2D idea of what this looks like. And we actually want to see it in three dimensions so we can see the entire shape 
of the molecules and how they're actually interacting. Most of the time, then, is actually spent in front of the computer trying to process that and trying to get the, the 3D information out of that. So how long does the entire process take from, like, preparing a sample to getting in the microscope to assembling it? That is a good question. <laughs> like a day? Probably more than a day. Yeah. So it can be pretty painstaking sometimes to find the exact right conditions for uh, the complex that you're looking at to be suitable to be viewed under the microscope. And some things work out faster than others. You can make your um, samples to look at under the microscope in a few hours or in a day. You have to, to do this many times to figure out the perfect conditions. And then when you're, when you're actually on the microscope, for, for a very high resolution 3D structure, we usually collect data for a very, very long time. The last data collection session that I had was actually seven days straight. But you didn't have to be there the whole time, did you? You get to go home, right? Luckily, in this case, I had sent my samples to um, a remote data collection site, but I have collected data here, not for seven days straight. And yeah, you do, you stay overnight, you hang out on the, the couch in the basement and... Just like waiting for the machine to beep? <laughs> um, so it, it needs a little bit of monitoring. You need to select where you want to take the images and you need to constantly, well, not constantly, but every couple hours you need to fill up the liquid nitrogen that keeps it cold so you can't actually leave it you have to to babysit it and so you haven't entirely left toxic substances behind if you're working with liquid nitrogen huh do you actually have to like pick up a tank and and pour it into another tank and try not to melt your face off i'm sure it's much safer than that here at berkeley but... yeah uh we wear goggles <laughs> Maybe I'm just desensitized to it, but I don't find liquid nitrogen to be um, extremely dangerous. The main issues are if you're in an enclosed room, you could potentially be asphyxiated if it filled up with liquid nitrogen. But, but that doesn't happen. <laughs> and uh, it, it's also because it's so cold, if you get it trapped against your skin, then it can give you essentially frostbite. So it's dangerous to get it, especially in your eyes or, or something like that. But... You can't you can't do like they do in the movies where you like if someone dips their hand in it they could just shatter it into ice is that is that fall is that fact or fiction? So I guess if you left your hand in there for for quite a while that might happen. You'd need a lot of liquid nitrogen. So the thing is liquid nitrogen although it's extremely cold it doesn't absorb heat from the surroundings very easily so uh it would take it would take quite a while and a lot of liquid nitrogen to to freeze your whole hand I guess. Okay, that's good to know. I I feel better already. And you said that each like protein complex you're working on has like a different recipe, basically, and that every time you prepare a sample for a different complex, it's like a whole new scenario. Yeah, there are some basic principles, and you can make predictions based on things that have worked for similar complexes, but um, each time it's a little bit different, and it's always different in each person's hands. So, well, it sounds pretty exciting overall, right? big microscopes, liquid nitrogen, dark rooms, you have flashing lights, like maybe a few like lasers on the ceiling. Or not, nothing that exciting? Just a disco ball. Just a disco ball. Nice. Yeah, that counts. That counts. Well, so I, you've also done a lot of other work here at Berkeley with outreach, right? I saw, I saw that, that you've been involved in quite a few different programs. So are, are any of those closer to your heart? Do you work more with one outreach program than another, or are you just... Um, try and do outreach wherever you can. This is also something that I never would have predicted if you told me um, a few years ago that I'd be doing, because a, a couple of the outreach programs that I'm involved with are actually involving 
middle school kids. And I, I, I didn't think that I liked children. When it comes to science, it's actually really great to see how they react when it's presented in sort of an interactive way. And, it's, it, and it can be made fun. Um, so it's not just they're sitting there and we teach them about chemistry and, and all that. But some kids are uh, just naturally excited when they're reading about science or when their teacher's talking about science. But I think a lot of them aren't. And science just seems like this collection of miscellaneous facts that you either know or you don't know. But the programs that I'm involved with, uh, one of them is Be a Scientist, which is essentially like a graduate student-led in-class science fair, if you could imagine that. Um, and we, we work with small groups of middle schoolers to have them develop their own idea for a science project to do so everybody can do something different. And of course, there is a budget, but we bring a lot of the materials for them so that they can do something that maybe they wouldn't be able to do at home. And we, we go through the entire process of science with them. We, we allow them to make up their own hypothesis and we try to teach them about all the variables that could be involved and get them thinking in a scientific way. And so a lot of them, when we first come in, they may not seem very interested. They're like, oh, man, we have to do this. But almost all of the students that I've worked with so far in that program, by the end, they seemed interested and excited about their own projects and about the other projects going on in the class. That's really great. Uh, it's Yeah, it's really great to see people, especially scientists here. I mean, we're so busy, right? But finding time to actually try and interest the next generation to make sure that they understand, as you said, scientific thinking, being able to think about a problem and then being able to uh, complete a process all the way through and come up with some results. So that's great. And what what inspired you to do this? In retrospect, I am not actually sure how I got involved in all these different outreach programs. I think that once I sort of started, then it just snowballed into this gigantic, uncontrollable thing. <laughs> Oh, well, I think it's good work. So, I, you know, I think everyone appreciates it, especially the kids. But, um, so speaking of kids, if so if you do you have any advice for like younger generations of students who are interested in science, who are thinking about either majoring in science in college or trying to get involved in a research lab? Do you have any advice for them? So I would say that if you're interested in it, you should pursue it, because even if you decide later on that maybe you know, you majored in physics and physics isn't for you, then along the way, you're going to learn a lot of things. Um, you're going to learn the scientific way of thinking and analyzing a problem. And that's helpful no matter what you do. And for somebody who's an undergraduate and is thinking maybe they'd like to get involved in research, I would say um, if your school doesn't have a specific program for this, which they very well may, but if they don't, then try talking to some of the professors in your school and see if there are any labs that might have an opening, because this is going to give you a much a better idea of how science actually works. I, I actually was worried that I didn't really like science when I took um, my intro chemistry lab because I didn't like all these sort of prescribed experiments where they tell you what to do. But then when I started working in a research lab and it's it's a lot more flexible, it's a lot more creative, you get to think of your own ideas and obviously there are standard protocols, there are way, ways of doing things, but it's a lot more intellectually stimulating when you're actually thinking about a problem that, that someone else hasn't solved already. Yeah, I know it's cool to hear people use the word creative and science in the same, or research in the same sentence, because a lot of people, yeah, like you said, they think about science and they just think it's like a collection of facts and they don't really understand that there's this whole other aspect of creativity and even artistry that goes into being a scientist. So that's, that's cool. 
good advice for students. Um, what about for the general public? Is there anything you've been like trying to get off your chest in terms of topics in your scientific field or research or anything that the public should know listening to this radio show? Like science is good. I think we can agree on that one. I was interested in science from a very young age, and um, I don't necessarily expect that everybody is going to say, oh, this is my favorite subject. I, I read chemistry journals for fun on a Sunday morning. But as I was saying, I think that the scientific way of thinking is something really important. Mastering the scientific way of thinking is really important for everybody. You can use it in your daily life to, for example, evaluate claims made by politicians or determining whether you really should mix those two household chemicals together or if it's dangerous. I mean, all these kind of things don't necessarily require you to get a PhD, but just to, to sort of be trained to, to think in that way. It's like a sport where some people might come into it with a little bit more talent than others, but you're never going to be good if you don't actually do your practice. So so having a, a basic education in science is, is really important for everybody, I think. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And that's definitely a message that we're trying to promote here at Berkeley and also on the graduates. So I think we're about time for uh, last words. Now's your chance. If you have any last words about anything we said, you can throw them in now. Otherwise, we're going to call it. I guess to me, one of the most important things is not just that I think um, scientific education is important, but all this research doesn't come out of nowhere. It costs um, a lot of money, actually. And the public funding for scientific research has kind of been dwindling a lot over the years. And I think I mean, part of that is due to the economy, but a lot of it is that maybe the benefit to society of a given research project might not necessarily be um, apparent right away. And so I could just tell people that I study this because I'm interested in it and I like it and I think other people should be interested in it too. But when it comes to actually spending federal dollars on this, uh, why should people care? And I would just say, we don't know what's going to come out of something until we start studying it. A lot of the great findings in biology, for example, in this century have been made in flies. Even as someone in basic science, I can't say that I would have anticipated that all these amazing results in biology that are so important and fundamental now uh, would have come from researching fruit flies. So in science, funding this kind of stuff, all kinds of science, is actually uh, not just a curiosity. It's really important for society as a whole. And even though it might just be um, a fruit fly, for example, that doesn't mean that it's not important. No, I think that's that is definitely a great point, um, especially as you said in today's you know in today's world where the funding seems to be harder and harder to come by. Uh, we can't emphasize enough that even if it's basic science, as you said, which is just like trying to understand things, or if it's applied science where they're actually trying to make it. Uh, make the world a better place, for example, using research. Either way, 100%, we can agree that it's really important and you're not going to know what comes out of it until you actually sit down and do the research and see what's there. So um, I think that's a great point. And I hope that everyone out there is listening and taking note of that and maybe voting to increase science funding. Yes. Yay. Um, so I think we'll leave it there because now we've said our last words. So Thank you for listening. My name is Tesla Munson. You have been tuned into the graduates here on KLX Berkeley. Today, I've been joined by structural biologist Nicole Halipek from the Department of Molecular and Cell Biology. She's been telling us about her work here at Berkeley and also in the past at Temple, where she got her Bachelor of Science working with toxic substances, but now uh, moving on to the innate immune system and just trying to understand 
the basic science of immunity in animals, including humans. So obviously really important at the basic level and also really applicable to our everyday life. So I think it's a great topic. And I want to thank you again for coming on the show today. And we'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Until then, stay tuned. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley.